Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Stand by. Three, two, one. Action. Assume nothing. Brash, bald-faced blasphemy. Question everything. I find it extremely hard to imagine. Open your eyes. It is quite all right to be an atheist. The fastest growing group of people in the country has been measured as being those who have no belief or who are atheists. You don't have to be apologetic or quiet about it. Challenge the opposition. You see religion on a hundred fronts losing the argument. And start thinking. This is The Thinking Atheist Worldwide. Of course, our hearts continue to go out to the people of Paris in the wake of the ISIS terrorist attack of this past weekend. It just dominates the headlines, it dominates the conversations out there, and in a way, it ties a little bit into the topic for tonight's broadcast. Tonight's show is actually the audio of a presentation I've been giving around the country for the past several months and recently recorded in Orlando on the 7th of November. It's called, and I recently retitled it, it's called The Insanity of Humanity. And it talks about the crazy shit that supposedly enlightened people in the 21st century do to please God, 
or gods or spirits or some divine other out there in the hope of receiving reward either here on earth or in the afterlife. Now, we should be better than this. We should be more enlightened than this. And yet here we are stuck on this sort of hamster wheel of destructive ideas. How does this happen? Isn't it time to put obsolete ideas behind us and move forward? And the speech ended with the unveiling of a video that I've since released on YouTube, narrated by Nathan Phelps, the son of Fred Phelps, who founded Westboro Baptist, Nate Escaped, and has been a human rights activist and just an amazing guy. And he and I collaborated on a project that extols love over hate and talks about the petty tribalistic divisions that we have against each other and all the excuses we have to hate each other when we should be focusing our energies into a more productive, positive future where we can love each other despite our differences. In fact, even because of our differences. And I think the speech in that way may tie in to the headlines of late. I thought about rescheduling a week or two, but I just think I'm going to roll with it. It is a lighthearted speech. And maybe we could use the levity. I don't know. As with all my presentations, this one has a lot of visual cues to it. And you're going to hear the audience from time to time reacting at what might seem to the radio audience an odd time. There's a good chance they're simply reacting to something I've put on screen. At one point, I was talking about a Jewish atonement ritual and I pulled a rubber chicken out of my laptop case. You know, those kind of gags will be lost on the radio audience. But I think most of the message really does translate to the podcast, and I'll include the video in the description box of this show. So the link will be there and you can go watch it after you listen to it if you so choose. So I hope you enjoy it. It is called The Insanity of Humanity. Thank you so much for allowing me to be back here again in Florida. It is an honor to be able to do what I do and to be able to connect with people like you everywhere I go and thank you. It's a hugely humbling thing to be able to, to participate. And today's a special day for me. I uh, just finished a, a video. I finished it Thursday and I uh, haven't released it yet. I brought it today and at the end of this presentation you will be the first people ever to see it. So I'm very excited. And I'm a little nervous. I was telling uh, some friends that it's like, you know, your children on stage during the school play, you know, just tell me they're pretty. Just tell me they're talented. <laughs> tell me you love them. That's exactly what it's like unveiling this kind of thing. Most of what I'm going to talk about today is based on my latest book, which I will shamelessly shill for here at this convention. Let me see a show of hands. How many of you have a fear of snakes? Be honest. Well, this is common. A lot of people out there suffer from aphidiophobia, the fear of snakes, and I totally understand it. There's something about the look of the snake. You know, the sleek, almost sinister line of the serpent, the scales, the darkly intelligent and never closing eyes, the smiling mouth of the snake, the forked tongue, and inside the mouth of the venomous snake, a poison-filled syringe of doom. <laughs> now, apparently our fear of snakes has an evolutionary origin. There was a study done by a couple of guys at the University of California's Department of Psychology, Michael Pincunis and Richard Koss. 
And their research revealed that the mere sight of a legless reptile would trigger an immediate fear response in the primate brain. This is apparently a holdover from our distant ancestry when venomous snakes posed a significant threat to our survival. Our fear of snakes just may have kept us alive. Speaking of the fear of snakes, when you get a chance, check out Piranaconda on (laughs) sci-fi. It's a horror movie classic. As noted behind me in my extremely boring slide, scientists in Brazil and Japan recently tested something called the snake detection theory. It was based on the work of anthropologist Lynn Isbell back in 2007, which examined a region of the brain called the pulvinar. Now, apparently, neurons in the pulvinar receive signals from our eyes and immediately direct our attention to specific things in a wider field of view. Let me give you an example, and forgive the horribly photoshopped image up here that I put on screen. (laughs) But I mean, let's say you've got an image with multiple items in it. You've got the green of the carpet, you've got the chair, you've got the table, you've got the red of the house, and the snake. Well, if Isbell's data is correct, we have evolved so that the snake will immediately become our first and primary area of focus. And we should probably be thanking the snake in this regard, because if the data is accurate, it may be one of the reasons that we higher primates have superior vision and larger brains. Snakes may have made us smarter. Well, actually, snakes made some of us (laughs) smarter. There is, my friends. A church culture that instructs the faithful to not only ignore their panicky pulvinar, but to actually invite venomous snakes into their homes and churches for a Sunday morning snack. Of course, you're well ahead of me. We're talking about the wild, weird, pulpit-pounding Pentecostals called snake handlers. And you have not lived until you've seen this shit on YouTube. (laughs) It's insane. Scattered throughout Alabama, Kentucky, South Carolina, Tennessee, and West Virginia right now, in November of 2015, there are an estimated 125 active snake handling churches. And they take literally the words of Mark 16, 18. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Except when they don't. (laughs) You guys remember the story about this guy, right? Jamie Coots, pastor of the Full Gospel Tabernacle in Jesus' name in the Appalachia Hills, also a television star, was one of the co-hosts of the Nat Geo TV series called Snake Salvation. He was bitten on the hand and died Saturday, February 15th of last year. And this wasn't the first time he'd had a horrible encounter with a snake. He'd been bitten nine times before that. Upon his death, news reports popped up everywhere. The New York Times carried the story, USA Today, the Huffington Post, even the Wall Street Journal. It was, it was carried overseas. I saw stories like in The Independent and stuff. I thought, this is how the rest of the world sees the United States. It just makes me grieve. 
Well, in the wake of his father's senseless death, his son Cody, in his infinite wisdom, informed the Christian Post that, you know, relatively speaking, death by snakebite is really not that bad, especially compared to a stroke or a car accident. He then declared via social media, went on Facebook, and said he aspired to one day take up his father's mantle and become a snake-handling minister himself. By the way, he also begged for money, which is the mark of any good preacher, because his father had not carried a live insurance policy and the family had no money for the funeral expenses. All right, let's recap for just a second. Somebody does something incredibly stupid. It goes awry. (laughs) They ask us, to give assistance, and we do so because we are good people, and then they announce that the stupidity is going to continue. (laughs) Is this not like somebody blowing up their house in a meth explosion and then coming to you and saying, help me buy or build a new house? It makes no sense. And unfortunately, humans aren't the only ones that suffer in these escapades. There are charges that snake handlers often abuse these poor animals. They're found dehydrated, malnourished, and sick. What happens when you dehydrate and malnourish a snake is it makes them less active, right? They're conserving energy, so they may be less likely to strike or bite. And even if they do strike, the fact that they have been malnourished and dehydrated often dilutes the potency of the venom. So if you are a snake-handling preacher, you're bitten by a venomous snake and you survive. Woo, praise Jesus, it's a miracle. When the truth was, it wasn't Jesus, it was animal abuse. And to add to all the insanity... Remember this scripture? They'll take up serpents and drink any deadly thing. It shall not hurt them, blah, 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 blah. Well, mainstream research and Bible historians have revealed, here's a clip from Carrier's book, Hitler, Homer, Bible, Christ, that says that those verses in Mark were actually forged or inserted after the fact by somebody else. The original book of Mark ends with a crucifixion. Somebody went in and tagged on the happy ending after the fact, including all of these verses about drinking poison and handling snakes, which means that they are operating on scriptures that aren't even part of the earliest manuscripts of scripture. Now, some people see snake handling as a healthy way of improving the collective IQ of the human species. It's like that meme on the internet that says, I'm not saying we kill the stupid, let's just remove the warning labels and let the problem kind of sort itself out. (laughs) You know, the idiots will filter themselves out of the gene pool kind of thing. But I'm more interested right now in how 21st century human beings, supposedly at the top of the Enlightenment chain, can think this is sacred. This is beyond criticism or reproach. This should continue. Let's stick with the biblical God for just a second and explore another sacred tradition, the Sabbath. (laughs) All right, the Sabbath. As God rested on the seventh day after the creation of the world, so his chosen people are charged to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, the fourth commandment. If you are an observant Orthodox Jew, you keep what's called malakka. There are 39 specific types of labor that are prohibited on the Sabbath. Those types of labor include plowing, planting, cooking, combing, shearing, weaving, sewing, slaughtering, tearing, cutting, writing, carrying, kindling, extinguishing, and a lot more. Now, this is where I want to camp out. Kindling and extinguishing for just a second, okay? 
For 25 hours on the Sabbath, from Friday evening, just a few minutes before sunset through Saturday night, you're not even allowed to cook a meal in your oven. Let's say you want to cook a Sabbath meal. You turn on the oven. The turning of that knob constitutes an action, work. And that, of course, will offend the great kosher chef in the sky. <laughs> well, never fear, my friends, because major appliance manufacturers like Electrolux, Maytag, Kenmore, Whirlpool, GE, and others have addressed this challenge with a special feature called, and I'm not making this up, Sabbath mode. Now, if you have purchased an appliance in the last several years, check the instruction manual. I would wager there's a portion in the index called Sabbath Mode and a whole section in your manual about this. When Sabbath Mode is engaged, no lights, digits, solenoids, fans, icons, tones, or displayed can be activated. They are rem removed as an option during the Sabbath. And just to make sure you're in compliance, you can have organizations like Star K Online kosher certify your stove or oven to make sure that you're doing it right. Now, we are from an area where there aren't a lot of Orthodox Jews hanging around. I'm guessing most of you, if you came from religion, came from some kind of a Protestant faith. So I want to take just a second and get into the Sabbath and kind of what it is in just a cursory way uh, and, and what it means to be kosher. Kosher comes from the Hebrew keshrut. It means suitable and or pure. Observant Jews believe you are what you eat. And the laws of Keshrut comprehensively dictate permitted and forbidden foods. Here's just a taste, if you'll pardon the expression. Kosher meat is limited to cattle and game that have cloven hooves and chew the cud. If your split-hooved animal does not chew the cud, you do not chew the animal. Meats are to be processed in a very specific way that removes specific fats and veins. Dairy products can come only from kosher animals. Meat and milk may not be combined. This is per the command of Exodus 23, 19. Eggs have to come from kosher birds and must contain no blood. Acceptable fish must have fins and scales, and you must trim them with a kosher knife. Shellfish is forbidden outright. Leviticus 11.12 tells us, Whatever hath no fins nor scales in the waters, that shall be an abomination unto you. Of course, this scripture prompting a couple of extremely sarcastic and totally awesome people to start a website called GodHateShrimp.com. <laughs> Shrimp, crab, lobster, clams, mussels, all these are an abomination before the Lord, just as gays are an abomination. Why stop at protesting gay marriage? Bring all of God's law unto the heathens and the sodomites. We call upon all Christians to join the crusade against Long John Silver's and Red Lobster. Yea, even Popeye's shall be cleansed. The tagline for this site is, Pinch the tail, suck the head, burn in hell. Back to kosher. Fruits and vegetables grown via soil plants or trees, those are fine, provided they didn't come from a field that combined two different types of seeds. And you must check them for multi-legged insects that break the kosher code. That's right. The most wise and powerful being in the cosmos cares what type of bugs crawled on your veggies. Wine must be fermented only with certain enzymes and come from a kosher winery with each bottle prepared under strict rabbinical supervision. The list of requirements goes on and and on and on and on, and it's exhausting. And on top of the food restrictions, you're not even allowed to crank up the oven to cook food or even warm pre-cooked food on the Sabbath. Well, 
Never fear. If you are a more progressive Jew who is allowed to turn knobs, and again, I'm not making this up, an organization called Torah Technologies has invented a device for your appliance called the tweaker. When the tweaker is engaged, all digital functions of your appliance are removed, meaning that all the uh, tones and the lights are pulled so that you can do everything manually, what was forbidden digitally. Also, it delays the action of knob turning, meaning you can turn the heating knob midday on Friday, get warm hala on Saturday. Congratulations, Jews, you've just outsmarted God. <laughs> You're not even allowed to have a lit light bulb in your oven if you're an observant Jew. On the Sabbath, the closing of the circuit in the bulb constitutes kindling. That's forbidden. So for a period of about 25 hours, you're required to go and keep the light bulb in your oven unscrewed. It blows my mind. In the book, uh, I had Vince DePorter, a brilliant illustrator who participated in Sacred Cows, draw this one up as the Orthodox Jew looks in the oven. My bulb isn't dim. And she's like, I beg to differ, right? <laughs> well, in Judaism, like Christianity and so many other faiths, we don't want to sin. We want to keep ourselves pure. We want to be obedient. We want to please our invisible Father in the sky. And when we become sinful, it's important we purge ourselves of that sin. Many Orthodox Jews do this through another sacred tradition. It's called kaparot, and it requires a live chicken. Yom Kippur is also known as the Day of Atonement, and kaparot is usually done around dawn on the day before. Okay, and here's kind of how it works. The instructions are extremely clear. You must use, first of all, a white chicken. Whatever you do, don't use a black chicken, as black is the color that represents divine severity and discipline. And whatever you do, don't use an obviously blemished chicken. Well, of course. Here's a practical demonstration. Here's how caparote is done, okay? First of all, you read a paragraph. I'm going to spare you the text here. Children of men who sit in darkness in the shadow of blah, 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 blah. You have to recite all of this, okay? So this is the first paragraph, and you get to the second paragraph. When reciting in the beginning of the second paragraph, you wave the chicken over your head in circular motions three times. Here's how it works. And yes, you want to have your cameras ready. This is usually the most opportune moment, so. You take the chicken over your head. Oh, I see the cameras right now. That's awesome. You take the chicken over your head and you circle it and say this. This is my exchange. And you take it a second time. This is my substitute. And a third time. This is my expiation. And you repeat that two more times before giving the chicken to a ritual slaughterer who takes a razor blade and slices off its head. This is atonement. Just in the Old Testament times, they would bring the goats into the Old Testament altar for sacrifice, right? They would take the sins of the people and put them into the animals. They would then slaughter the animals. A blood atonement, a blood sacrifice for sin. Jesus Christ on the cross, the sins of humanity on Christ's body. His body is killed, a blood sacrifice, an atonement for sin. This is what they do with the chicken. Here's an actual photograph of this guy swinging a chicken around his head. Now, they call this sacred 
They think this should be protected. And it's taught to children so they can properly atone for sin. Now check this out. When they're done with the chickens, when they do this ritual and they swing the poor things around and they slice their heads off and whatnot, they then donate the chicken bodies to feed poor people, which prompts the question, if you give somebody else a chicken fully evil... Do they then have to go get a fresh white chicken and start the process all over again? So often again, the innocent who pay the price for the insanity of humanity, is it not? And this tradition is called sacred. This must continue. This makes perfect sense. There was an observant Jewish family in Brooklyn. They were not allowed to turn on their stove or whatnot on the Sabbath, so they turned on a hot plate the day before. It malfunctioned, it burned the house down, it killed seven of the eight children and the father. Only one child and the mother escaped by jumping through a second-story window. Just in the Brooklyn area, this is the fourth Sabbath or holiday fire to have killed people since 2000, most of them caused by ritual candles. You can't strike a match on the Sabbath. You have to do it well before and leave these candles running. Why must the innocent suffer? For hundreds of years, residents of a town called Brodlovo have sought to cleanse the community, a small community in Bulgaria, of evil, ward off rabies, and bring good luck and fertility to the land through a practice called Trechin. Trechin translates literally dog spinning. Yes, really. (laughs) Here's how Trechin works. The townspeople gather around a custom-constructed spinning apparatus, usually some posts. There's an overhead beam with a rope tied in the center. People voluntarily bring their own pet dogs. They erect this apparatus over a body of water, a creek, or a river, maybe a small pond. They then take the dog, they tie the rope around the dog's waist, and they coil the animal slowly, increasing the tension of the rope over and over and over and over until the rope can be coiled no more, and then they release the poor animal to spin and flail for an eternal 20 to 30 seconds before it splashes into the water, often so disoriented that the animal drowns. Animal rights groups protested, obviously, this barbaric practice, and it was temporarily banned. And then the mayor came forward, this was just a few years ago, and pled his case for why this must continue for the land to be prosperous. This is a sacred tradition that must be carried forward. It's insane. It boggles the mind that at some point, a citizen of this village looked at another citizen and said, you know, our crops have been rather pithy this season. Bring me some rope and a puppy. In the book, we reverse it. We let the dogs spin the humans. We thought that was (laughs) called it karma. So in villages across India, they're not spinning dogs. They're dropping babies. Villagers petition the spirits for good health, long life, and the success of their young children by hauling these poor kids up to the tops of these roofs or ledges. About 50 feet high, there's a crowd waiting below that holds out an outstretched sheet, and they drop these poor children to be caught 
in the sheet below, quite often injuring the children significantly. The kids are one to two years old. They believe this is a necessary initiation, right? And this barbaric practice continues because it is sacred. It is part of our heritage. It's part of the way we've always done it and always should. What about this sacred Spanish ritual of baby jumping? This one dates back to medieval times. The guy dressed up as the devil jumps over young babies to signify that they have escaped the foot of Satan, I would suppose. This is supposed to ward off evil spirits. It just blows my mind. All of this to appease who? Some cosmic genie somewhere out there with, let's face it, some really strange fetishes. (laughs) Here's another bizarre edict carried out by supposedly higher primates. At least it's human adults that bear the brunt of this one. In a small village in India, where people gather in a centuries-old practice, hundreds converging at this southern state to petition the gods for what else? Good luck, good health, long life, and success. And they do this by asking a chief priest to smash a coconut over their heads. A holy man begins the ceremony by standing on a bed of nails, and they take seven elders of the tribe, and they kneel them before this high priest. And he takes the coconuts, and he initiates all seven of them. And then I guess hundreds of people travel up to hundreds of miles from all over the place to get in a line so that they can have a coconut smashed over the tops of their heads. Many of these people so injured, they require medical treatment by attending paramedics. Some people refuse the medical care, and they simply sprinkle their blading bleeding skulls with sacred ash. Some people take pieces of the broken coconut home as a good luck charm. This is sacred. This is reasonable. This is necessary in the 21st century. It blows my mind. Of course, you guys are familiar with the uh, annual Easter self-crucifixion ritual in the Philippines. You guys see the headlines of this? Every time Easter rolls around, we see these guys doing what they do. And this image is a little harsh, so bear with me. But these people voluntarily... Create cat of nine tails whips, many of them homemade, and they flagellate themselves bloody in the streets. They walk this long row, kind of a parade, wailing and moaning in pain. And at the end of this bizarre little dance, they have themselves voluntarily nailed, literally nailed, to crosses. This is supposed to atone for sin, bring good luck, produce miracles for the afflicted, and show gratitude to God. This guy's name is Reuben Inage. This past spring, he was crucified for the 29th consecutive year. He actually keeps these nails in a jar in his house, 364 days out of the year. And he pulls them out on Good Friday, and they they are pounded in through his hands and his feet. Go figure. It just boggles the mind. Now, to add to this insanity, if you look right here next to his face, you see that little foam thing? That's a wireless microphone. They literally wire him for sound just in case the back row of gawking rubberneckers can't hear the poor bastard screaming. And it's become such a popular tourist attraction, area gift shops surround the square where people are crucified. And you can actually, in some of these shops, purchase commemorative crucifixion nails. Can you imagine? This is sacred. By the way, those brave, a.k.a. stupid enough to participate in this tradition of self-crucifixion are encouraged to get tetanus shots in advance. (laughs) You know, for reasons of safety and hygiene. 
Because after all, when having cold steel driven through healthy flesh for the purposes of ritual torture, it's always important to exercise cleanliness and prevent any nasty infections. <laughs> this makes even less sense to me when you think about Christ's sacrifice on the cross, even if you believed it. Essentially, you're declaring that Jesus, the sacrifice of a God, wasn't enough. It makes no sense. Now, all of this to appease some divine other in the sky, God or otherwise. I'd like to address those who talk about these fringe beliefs when they participate in a mainstream belief and say, that's crazy. When I was a mainstream Protestant Christian, I would have looked at all this craziness over here and the coconuts and the baby tossing and thought, this is offensive, this is horrible. Not realizing that in my own life, my mainstream sacred rituals were no less crazy if I would just take a moment to look at them objectively. Let's look to the Catholic Church. Of course, here's the Catholic Father, the Bishop of Rome. They have a, a cadre of bizarre and sacred customs in the Catholic Church, probably my favorite being communion. 1 Corinthians 11:28. a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Have you guys seen that poster? It says, communion, come for the crackers, stay for the Kool-Aid. I always thought that was a great line. <laughs> And of course, the Catholics believe in a miracle called transubstantiation, where during communion, the crackers and the wine literally change in. They transform into the actual flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Cannibalism. It's like that poster that says, eat Jesus, one cracker at a time. Now, there's no scientific evidence anywhere that transubstantiation takes place. No scientific or historical proof of the supernatural Christ figure that this ritual, this sacred ritual, is based upon. And yet millions participate just blindly at every Mass, happily. And the practice goes unchallenged. Why? Because it's sacred. It's just how we do it. It's how we've always done it. It's how we should do it moving forward. A lot of stuff in the Catholic Church I can't get my head around. I mean, this is the same church that asks its members to pray to its deity's mom so that Mary can intercede on our behalf. She's essentially counseling her son Jesus, but Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything. Why would he have to be counseled or convinced of anything? He already knows. Essentially, Mary is Tom Hagen, right? In The Godfather, and he's counseling Vito. I just don't understand it. How many times has Mary and her church gotten wrong? Very basic questions. This is the same church that once condemned Galileo for his heretical claim that the sun didn't revolve around the earth. It's the same church that warned back in March of 2007 that condoms might actually make the AIDS crisis worse. It's the same church that has a permanently posted no girls allowed sign in all of its halls of power. It's the same church that has lifelong celibates giving us advice on Maui. <laughs> Any Princess Bride fans in the house tonight? All right, good, good. It's the same church that employs and deploys demon police. The same church that's played the centuries-old game of hide the pedophile priest. The same church that tells non-heterosexuals that they are disordered and, quote, abusing human nature. All the while not seeing the irony of having anti-gay policies handed out by fancily dressed men who do not keep the company of women and who disappear together in secluded rooms for long periods of time. 
In Catholicism and Christianity, these beliefs and customs are drawn from the Bible, the foundational document for all of it, and that's what I want to anchor the rest of this portion of the presentation with. You know, the Bible, the cornerstone for the whole structure, the most sacred text in the history of sacred texts, and nobody knows who wrote the damn thing. Nobody. Not one of the 66 books. Nobody. Crack it open, what do you see? A true story, a sacred tale about a space wizard who created a dirt man and a rib woman in a special garden filled with talking animals and that they and their billions of descendants deserve death because they had the audacity to seek knowledge after the father that was supposed to protect them threw the temptation directly into their faces and then gave his arch enemy direct access to them. This story is sacred. There's the sacred tale of penguins walking 8,000 miles to the desert of the Middle East so they could rendezvous with anacondas, giant pandas, camels, polar bears, flamingos, and hamsters aboard a floating zoo while God violently drowned everybody else in a flood which then cleverly disguised itself as a natural layering of sedimentary rock and fossils radiometrically dated to millions of years before this event was supposed to take place. This story is sacred. I've got Balaam and his donkey in Numbers 22, more talking animals. This story is sacred. I've got a prophet so insecure about his bald head, he calls down a she-bear curse and murders young children who poked fun at him. Elisha's story is sacred. I've got David in 1 Samuel presenting as a wedding dowry to Saul the fleshy tips of 200 Philistine penises. What the fuck? <laughs> Whoa. 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 <laughs> A wedding dowry of foreskins. This story is sacred. I've got the sacred mastermind of the universe deciding again to fix humanity. This time he decides the wisest method to do so is teen pregnancy. <laughs> I'll wait for you. Take your time. He impregnates Mary so he can father himself by giving his divine seed to an unmarried girl whose neighbors will see her pregnant stomach and assume that she had committed adultery herself. Hey, thanks, Jesus. He then performs magic tricks in a primitive time and remote blip on the planet, content to have them chronicled in books written by anonymous authors and voted into a canon by the very people who had screwed up everything else in history. This story is sacred. I saw a brilliant comment online about the canonization process of Scripture. It said this, I wonder how many Christians are actively aware of the fact that their Bible is the product of committee meetings. <laughs> it really is. Instead of using his omnipotence to simply manifest forgiveness, which an omnipotent being certainly could do, he chooses to have himself an immortal killed on our behalf for our sins. But he's immortal. He cannot be killed. So the meme bears a great deal of truth when it says, Jesus was temporarily inconvenienced for your sins. <laughs> right? Isn't that more accurate? Jesus had a really shitty weekend for your sins. The good book is sacred. I grew up in a family where this book was untouchable. 
We were threatened with all kinds of stuff if we came after the Bible. The Bible is true, period, capital T. That's all there is to it. Jesus said it, I believe it, I believe it, because he said it, because I know it, because I know because I know And it's beyond criticism, beyond reproach, as blood, carnage, and pain spill out of its pages, requiring apologists to bend themselves into pretzel proportions to explain this thing and to justify it. Child sacrifice, slavery, the subjugation of women, torture, rape, genocide. This is not news to you guys. At the end of this sacred tale is a fire pit of agony and screams and pain and torture, which is the punishment for all of those who were confused by the same God who was not the author of confusion. Right now, in the 21st century, two-thirds of the planet worships somebody else or nobody at all, which means the eternal damnation of all these billions of people is really Jesus' fault for simply not being clear. You guys see that meme on the Betty Bowers page where Jesus knocks on the door and says, let me in. Why? So I can save you. From what? From what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. That's the salvation message, is it not? And while we're talking about Jesus, the second coming has been a long time coming. Everybody waxes on about walking and talking personally with Jesus in some unverifiable way. You and I would love to have proof of that. We're desperate for evidence of that. We want to see something we can get our meat hooks into. And instead, it's just what? Anecdotal evidence? Dreams? They see Jesus in dreams. They see him in visions. They see him in clouds. And, of course, they see him on various perishable food items out there. (laughs) This is the Jesus Krilled Cheese. This was recently discovered in Mexico. By the way, let me show you a few other Jesus miracles on food while we've got a second. This is a Cheeto Jesus. (laughs) We've got potato chip Jesus. This was discovered by Rosario Dawson in St. Petersburg. We got fish stick Jesus. Banana peel Jesus. There has been a pizza Jesus. And perhaps most embarrassingly, dog's anus, Jesus. How was this particular miracle discovered in the first place? That's a miracle. I don't get that. Just a quick aside, real fast, let me digress. You guys remember back in 2004, the uh, Virgin Mary toast, uh, the Virgin Mary grilled cheese was uh, discovered by Diana Dyser, Fort Lauderdale. She had this miracle take place. It was carried by international media, and she ended up putting this thing on eBay, and it was bought by Harris Casino. It was actually a brilliant move on her part because that sucker sold for $28,000. So keep your eyes open, you pattern seekers, for Jesus or the Virgin Mary on household items in your own life. Ultimately, you know, I I can't help but feel like generations of human beings have just gotten punked, you know? We're, We're victims of our own superstitious joke. We're performing these weird tricks for something, somewhere, out there, in the hopes that we'll be handed the good fortune, the goodwill, the good deeds and the good future that we should be creating for ourselves. We roll the bones, we drink the blood, we don the magic amulet, we take up the poisonous animal, we offer up the sacrifice, we faint and are revived so that we may faint again. We blow the billows of holy smoke, 
We wait for the spirits to acknowledge our sacred offerings and declare that he, she, or it has been appeased. And what's even more tragic is how often we use the word sacred to excuse bigotry, ignorance, fear, discrimination, hatred. I would wager there are many in this room who have family members and friends they barely speak to anymore because they had the audacity to be different, to say something different, to express themselves differently, to disagree to raise up a hand of opposition. They found themselves a skeptical minority in a room where the majority says, look, we've always done it this way, and so should you. And you look at them and you say, isn't it time to stop the madness? You ever feel that way? Isn't it time just to stop the madness? Let's try something new, because what we've tried in the past just is not working. I've had this on my mind lately. I get so many messages from good people who are cast off punished, rejected. I'm doing a radio show in a few days from a woman who was kicked out of a Mormon home because some 16-year-old girl told her parents she didn't believe anymore. She was skeptical and she's out on her ear. They had essentially chosen an invisible father over a flesh and blood child that breaks the heart. Religion splinters us. Political ideology splinter us. Bigotry splinters us. If only we would channel all this energy we use into dividing each other into these tiny factions and, and use it instead to reach out in a positive way. Well, I just finished a video on this very thing. It's going to release on YouTube in a a few days, uh, but I want to debut it here for you. It runs about just a hair over four minutes or so. And uh, I know after all the laughs and the insanity and the frivolity that we've enjoyed over the last 40 or so minutes, it is this that I would like to leave you with today. I, I called a friend and asked him if he would narrate the piece for me, and I certainly hope you enjoy. Why are we so quick to see the ugly when we stand before the beautiful? Why have we declared that those who are different than us are separate from us? Why do we stand before the light only to turn and face the darkness? Far back to the earliest moments of human memory, we've broken ourselves into small tribes of inclusion. Only so that we could treat others with exclusion. We told ourselves that we were right, that we were superior, and that God was on our side. So many sacred scriptures, rites, Edicts and doctrines are bathed in the blood of tribes, each one warring against the other, each one declaring divine right, each prepared to take their divisions, their bigotry, their fear, and their hatred to the grave. And tragically, many do so. Thousands and thousands of groups religions, cultures, races, and nations, each declaring that it's us versus them, each building their temples, monuments, and messages upon the human tragedy of ignorance, division, and hate. It's such a waste to look at all others and hope to only see ourselves. 
stand upon the claims of primitive times and primitive minds, declaring that times and minds should never change, and holding in contempt the very people we should be holding in our arms. Ignorance, fear, hatred, we teach it to our children. They teach it to their children, who teach it to their children. We cloak it in the shroud of righteousness. We speak it in the name of justice. And we claim it in the name of God. And we could be so much better. I have witnessed the power of hatred, but I discovered a much grander and better world beyond. I see your face, and it is beautiful. I hear your voice, and it is beautiful. I know that you are different than me, and it is beautiful. And I'm proud to stand beside you like a brother. I am your brother. We are links in the human chain, alive at this moment for a brief, priceless chance to breathe the air feel the sun upon our faces, to speak the very best words for the very best reasons, to pursue the best ideas and achieve the greatest dreams, to unite instead of divide, to heal instead of harm, and to share together the preciousness of life. Wouldn't it be something if those were the things we taught to our children? To look at someone who is different wonderfully different and see something beautiful. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to the broadcast tonight. FYI, if you are interested in watching the video that you just heard the audio of, the one narrated by Nathan Phelps, that is available on the Thinking Atheist YouTube channel. The video is titled Something Beautiful. There's also a version floating around on Facebook linked to my Seth Andrews Facebook page. So if you want to find it, watch it, perhaps even share it, it is out there. And thank you so much. We're taking next week off for the holiday. I'll see you back here in two weeks on the Thinking Atheist radio podcast. Take care. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. Watch dozens of original videos on The Thinking Atheist YouTube channel. And visit our website for resources, links, contact information, the editor's blog, and more. TheThinkingAtheist.com Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.